Okay, so we've looked at the first two uh, classes have been on the scripture, on the word. Um, more uh, the centrality of the word in the first one, the practicality of listening to the word in the second one. Any questions that you feel like, man, I, we need to ask this about what we've looked at so far? And there doesn't have to be, but I want to give you an opportunity if there are. On the scripture. Yeah. All right, so um, one of uh, Stephen, who's not here, he's been emailing me about like the Council of Orange and all kinds of questions on uh, Ignatius. Uh, so I'm going to just say a couple of things that he has sent. There he is right there. A couple of things that he's mentioned so that um, I think it's helpful. We talked a little bit about uh, at the Council of Orange, the, the, the issue there was when does the church in Rome become Roman, right? That was the question in the Council of Orange, uh, where the Council of Orange is used as a reference point. So for instance, um, at the Council of Orange, it was sin and grace that was being discussed and it was an Augustinian versus Pelagian view of sin and grace. Um, church historians like to ask that question, when did the church in Rome become Roman, right? When did the Catholic church become the Roman Catholic church? And theologically, uh, many describe it in terms of when what was affirmed at the Council of Orange was turned upside down in the church officially, that's when it happened. Uh, so the Council of Orange was in 529, uh, and then probably around anywhere from 900 to 1200 is where they say the shift started taking place. Uh, there's also things that happened in terms of East versus West. There's things that happened in terms of the popes. All of that were contributing factors to when this happens, but the view of sin and grace, or what the confession would say, the primary things about salvation, that's when things started changing in there. So, but his question was, Steve's question was, well, what about uh, lower tier doctrines? Like, so when we look at the consensus of upper tier doctrines, things like pertaining to sin and grace, why doesn't uh, the lower tier doctrines get the same kind of scrutiny or have the same kind of effect in the historical argument? And that is because... Uh, the historical argument is, is just that. It's an argument from history, right? Um, and our confession, our tradition, says that the things concerning salvation are clear. And that's why if you were to look at church history, you're going to see the central core things pertaining to salvation in Jesus that the church was pretty consistently, consensusly consistent um, on the lesser areas, which actually makes an argument for lesser tier doctrines, the church at a pretty early age was not. <laughs> you had many different viewpoints on the second, third, fourth tier kind of doctrines. And so that's just fascinating, right? It's interesting that the primary things were actually kept in a pretty good consensus. And then as you went out into lower tier doctrines, the consensus wasn't as uniform and it wasn't as powerful throughout church history. So that's just, but it's interesting, right? I mean, if you were to look at like say infant baptism, you have two major councils that uh, affirmed it. You had the apostle, you had the disciple. So you had John, you had Polycarp and you had Polycarp's disciple writing saying it was the apostolic practice. So does that mean it, that was the consensus of the church? No. But that's a nice historical evidence, is it not? Or the Council of Cyprian, which was an Egyptian council, I think it was in 155, where everyone there affirmed that it was an apostolic practice. It was only in that area, right? It's not uniformly across the whole church, but it's a pretty good historical argument. So anyhow... That's how you look at these things. I, I see them more as that's very interesting on the second, third, fourth tier doctrines. And it, 
it has a little more weight in the things pertaining to sin and grace, if that makes sense, okay? All right, um, let's do this. So our first two classes were uh, the scriptures. Today we're going to look at prayer. Next week I haven't figured it out yet what we're going to do. It might be you might have some suggestions. Like you want to wrap this thing up, what must you know about the spiritual disciplines? Hopefully by now we have some categories and we have a, probably just a, a good direction to think about things and then possibly put some things into practice into your life, right? I think after prayer today, we've covered the scripture and we've covered prayer, and those are, those are major. I mean, those are like everyone agrees these are big deal, big practices that we want to be a part of our life and growingly a part of our life. So let's review real quick just so that we understand why, we, why we're doing this. Uh, what is our goal in a class on spiritual disciplines? What's the goal? How do you want to approach the spiritual disciplines? If Jesus was here, he'd say, do you want to approach the spiritual discipline as an older brother? Do you want to approach the spiritual disciplines as a younger brother? Or do you want to approach the spiritual disciplines a third way, a gospel way? Well, obviously, that's what we're after, right? So we're not in the truth camp, and we're not in the experience camp. We're not in either of those camps. We're in the gospel camp, which is called an intelligent mystic. It's experiencing Jesus and his salvation by faith with the Bible, not apart from the Bible, okay? So... That's where we want to be an intelligent mystic. So when you think through, you've got mysticism and experience on one side, truth and doctrine on the other, and, you know, they were twins separated from birth, and they can't stand each other. Um, But they're twins in a family, and they're never meant to be divorced. Uh, You can look at church traditions and theologies and personalities. It's just kind of weird how they divide that way. Denominations primarily embody one of those ways. Theological systems kind of embody one of those ways. I mean, you can just look at church history and see that. Your personality sitting here tends towards one of those ways. So if you tend towards one of those ways, you know that you need to develop the other way in your life, right? If you feel absolutely uncomfortable because someone raises their hands you know that you need to develop the experience side of things, right? Um, yeah, and in the same, if you, think that, if you think doctrine has no drama, if theology has no fire, uh, you need to develop that side of things. So an intelligent mystic, truth and experience together, inseparable, no false dichotomies, no false arguments, no going down one camp or the other together. All right, so what are spiritual disciplines? We're, we're saying, for um, definition's sake, we're saying they're just spiritual practices. They're just spiritual exercises to foster spiritual formation. That's kind of the, the big word today. Um, how many are there? It depends on who you ask. Uh, the reason why we hit Ignatius is because Ignatius... Um, it's like he was the first bestseller of spiritual disciplines. Were there spiritual practices in the church? Of course there were. That's like we're talking about the scripture and we're talking about prayer, which we're going to talk about today. Um, there, there are these, uh, our tradition calls them means of grace. So in one sense, you can look at this in three ways. You have the spiritual discipline, the spiritual practices part that, kind of became a bestseller or the end thing in the church when people really started thinking about it and it getting really popular in the church, starting with Ignatius. It's not that it wasn't popular in the church. It's just that uh, it wasn't written about and talked about like it is and did since then, since Ignatius. Our tradition talks about the means of grace. Uh, And then you have uh, the other thing I mentioned here, which I think is important. You have spiritual practices are like if you have fixed, if you have fixed, whoa, fixed means of grace, then you have flexible practices 
of these. And this is where you get a lot, how long and short is your list. Um, prayer is a fixed means of grace. The sacraments are a fixed means of grace. The preached word is a fixed means of grace. Uh, the scriptures are a fixed means of grace. Well, then how do you practice that? That's where you have all these flexible practices, and that's where the popularity of spiritual disciplines came in. They probably were rooted in these fixed realities of Scripture and the history of the church, and then this takes over, and then what ends up happening is sometimes this fades a little bit, and this flexible stuff becomes fixed, depending on your tradition. So that's just one way to think about it, right? You've got spiritual practices. You've got the means of grace. And remember when we said about the means of grace, it's a big circle. It's a big field of meaning. Sacraments are in there. How many sacraments are there? Two. Two. And why are they called sacraments? Because Jesus gave them to the church, right? These weren't two things that the church thought of. Jesus... God gives them to the church, and they're completely gospel-oriented. They are signs and seals of Jesus' person and his work. Is prayer a sign and seal of Jesus' person and work? No. Gospel, that's why Augustine called the sacraments a visible word. They proclaim the gospel, right? The preached word proclaims the gospel, the written word. It's the verbal word. Well, then the sacraments were called the visible word. So this, is, this discussion that we're having right now is over the means of grace, broadly speaking, the sacraments, narrowly speaking, right? And then all the flexible practices that try to do those. And again, it's interesting to look in church history to see where these flexible practices take over and become a method called Methodism. You think I'm kidding, that's how Methodism got started. John Wesley started methods of holiness, methods of perfection. It became a denomination called Methodism. So, for our sake, what I want us to focus on are the means of grace and the sacraments, and build your practices off that, but know that they're off that, okay? So, let's talk about prayer, because prayer is in this means of grace. Sacraments. Um, the sacraments and the preached word are considered like foremost in the mean, of the means of grace, okay? And then there's a bunch of others from worship, which also obviously includes this. You've got friendship and community. You've got service. Uh, you've got uh, making friends and having gospel conversations or evangelism and missions. These are all means of grace. So let's take this, because we've hit the scripture, let's take this, and hopefully by the end of tonight, your prayer life will be completely transformed. That's my goal, honestly. It's a big goal, right? Usually it's to, you know, when you talk on prayer, the goal is to make you feel guilty. I'm actually going to bypass that one and actually transform our view of prayer, transform our practice of prayer. I'm sharing with you what has literally transformed my practice of the scripture and my practice of prayer. So it's not like I'm saying something that uh, hasn't done it in my life. Um, and again, I told you, I was the dude that broke his 24-hour his day down into 15-minute segments. I have practices on top of practices. Um, I was a Methodist in the true sense of the word. Okay, so 
Let's look at prayer, shall we? What is prayer? What is it? What do we know about prayer? Let's talk about that. Let's just think about it. I mean, again, just think about if you were to just sit down and say, here's an unchurched person. They're from uh, some hidden tribe in the lower Mongolia area. You're trying to explain prayer to them. Or your child, who's now three or four or whatever, that's asking you about prayer. Good, talking to God. Excellent. Anything else? Other ideas? Sticky statements, vivid images? Talking to God? What's that? Communion with God. This thing, did you hear the feedback? Are y'all getting the feedback? That's kind of annoying. I'm going to call TJ while we're doing this. Oh, is that what's happening? All right. Is it better over here? Okay. Let's do that. All right. So we got talking with God. TJ, I think I got a little uh, feedback. All right. What else? Talking with God, communion with God. How else would you describe prayer? Isn't that interesting? Peter. Okay, so there's a reflection. And what? Okay, so there's reflection, praise. You could go through the acts, right? Confession, thanksgiving, petition. Yeah. Okay. What else? Listening. listening. <laughs> Somebody was listening. Somebody's been listening. Good. What else? Isn't it interesting just to even talk about like what is what is prayer? Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. And it, yes. Okay. So let's nail down the definition. I'm going to give you the definition and we're going to fill it in. You ready? Prayer is oh. This is what it is. It's listening, answering, experiencing. This is what it is. So one of the ways that you can say right now, well, you know, you want to be an intelligent mystic. One of the ways that that's going to happen is through prayer. Well, I want to believe the gospel and have it internalized. I want it clear to my mind and real to my heart. Well, one of the ways that's going to happen is through prayer. Well, I really want to know that Jesus loves me. One of the ways that's going to happen is through prayer. Well, I really need to know that he's with me. I need to know he's with my kids. One of the ways that's going to happen is through prayer. See how this works? Okay, so here's the deal. What I'm about to say, here's what's going to transform you. Prayer is answering speech, not primary speech. This is absolutely revolutionary, transforming, and crucial. Prayer is not primary speech. Prayer is secondary speech. It's answering speech. You know what that means? Prayer only happens when you're first spoken to. It's not a primary language. It doesn't have its own originality. It is completely answering a primary speech. That's why we start with prayer, with listening, because you have to be able, you have to be spoken to in order to answer back. That's why it's so hard to pray when you go into your study or you go into your quiet place or you go wherever for a walk and you just try to start praying. Unless you're incredibly desperate. It's always easy to pray when you're desperate. 
But let's just say you're like not bipolar. You're not high. You're not low. You're just kind of there. It's so hard. I, I can't tell you like how I, I brought Operation Worlds. I did, I had, every, I had it all out there. And I, I mean, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pray for this part of the world. And I sit there and I start to pray. And then next thing I know, I'm looking at something on the ceiling and I just wasted five minutes because I don't even know what I said. And then I get, get frustrated that I can't focus. I get frustrated I can't think, right? Prayer is answering speech. So if you know you need to be spoken back to life in order to pray, guess what takes priority? God's word. And that's why we always start with listening. We always start with shut up and listen. We always start with the scripture. As you read the scripture, you get spoken back to life. Now you have something to say. And now you can, you know, you can dutifully and methodically go through acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Beautiful. Have fun doing that. Or you can read, listen, things start happening. The Bible has its own divine energies being let loose on you. God has his own agenda with you. God is speaking. God is making himself known. Jesus is showing up and grabbing you and loving you, teaching you, whatever, rebuking, whatever he's doing. And guess what happens? You generally will do something like this. And it might mean the first thing you do is you, you immediately think of a need. It might be the first thing you do when you're reading, you start thinking a need of someone you love. It might mean that the first thing you do is you're agreeing with him that you're just like Naaman. It might mean that you're absolutely like, oh my word, you're unbelievable, and you're adoring. But notice that it's very fluid, and it's very non, um, how do I say, controlled? Yes. Yes. Non-Methodist. Now, those of you that are more younger, brother, you're thinking, well, I need some structure. Fantastic. Those of you that are older, brother, need to, like, throw out your structure. I'm trying to walk us down a way that is able to see the pitfalls of both those personalities, both those tendencies in all of us, and see something that's a little more real, a little more... Um, organic, and yet it's intentional. Did you read the scripture? That's pretty doggone intentional. Did you say, I'm going to shut up and listen? That's pretty intentional. That right there just changed 99.9% .9 of people going to the scriptures. Correct. 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 Yes, Heather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, like a time is carved out. Yeah. You come and you pray yeah. out loud with each other. Yeah. And it, like, that's very scheduled. Yes. You're kind of describing it's very organic. Yes. Saying, so how do those gel? With that, I, both. Both are great. Um, I think th how would a prayer meeting possibly change just a little bit just by incorporating more of this dynamic, right? We have a prayer meeting, and maybe you begin by saying, hey, we're going to look at a passage. Or I'm going to read a psalm. And as I read the psalm, let's listen and gently read it, right? And then you read the psalm and, and say, hey, let's, let's, while we're reading the psalm, after I read the psalm, we're going to tell God some Wonderful, thank him for some wonderful things about him. That's intentionality, that's great. But there's also this listening, and it doesn't mean that you can't like spontaneously pray while you're walking or whatever, right? But the, the rhythm of a growing, developing prayer life is this. The reason why you actually probably can say some things 
and uh, beyond just desperate things is because this is actually happening. If you want to see your prayer life grow and develop, this is what's going to do it. Uh, intentionality will not do it. If you're intentional to listen and respond, it, it will do it. And you'll find that when you're driving and when you uh, have intentional moments, those are going to be richer because this is your understanding of prayer. If you don't have this understanding of prayer, all those other things will eventually become a method for you. And they will become something that you eventually will not like. And then you're going to feel even more guilty. Uh, remember, you can approach a practice in a gospel way, a moralistic way, or a relativistic way. A relativistic way is you don't do it. A moralistic way is you're doing it to uh, connect with God and his blessings, to activate God and his blessings in your life. That's a moralistic way. The other way, the gospel way, is everything that needs to be done has been accomplished. And this is a way that you actually enter into those things that Jesus has done. And you actually enjoy the God who loves you. And you begin to experience his love and his grace. And you're doing it because he loves you, not to get him to love you. You're doing it because he's blessed you, not to earn a blessing. You're doing it because he loves others and you want to be a part of that in the world, right? It's a whole different way of approaching them. All right, so prayer is answering speech, means it's secondary speech. It's not primary speech. What's primary speech? God's word. So in other words, you're first spoken to, now you have something to say. So if you want to, if you want to improve your prayer life, you want to have something to say, so you need to be spoken to. So get spoken to. That's how you're going to improve your prayer life. That right there is huge, absolutely huge. So prayer is first listening, then it's answering. And when you put listening and answering together, guess what happens? Experience. So listening, answering, you're communing with God. Listening, answering, you're encountering Jesus and his salvation, and it's becoming real to you. Do you see how this works? This is the dynamic of prayer, and it's the dynamic of what the olds and the Puritans would call spiritual mindedness. Who, you know, who cares what the language is? But that, just if you hear that, the words, oh, they're spiritually minded. This is what they mean. Um, they practice scripture meditation. This is what they mean. This is the this is the dynamic of understanding how the giants of old and our tradition of old talked about spiritual formation, scripture, uh, meditation, and the other one that I said that I can't remember. Okay? All right, so here's the deal. Prayer is God's appointed way to actually make the gospel clear to your mind and real to your heart. So, you know, you take a... So that's why you take a... a an intentional approach to reading the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, mix up your literary forms. You know, if you're constantly reading the letters, you know, you go from uh, Philippians to Colossians. That's great. But even mix up your genre. Mix it up. Like if, you, if you've done a gospel and you're doing a gospel in the New Testament and you're reading um, like Nehemiah in the Old Testament, uh, they're very similar narratives. So maybe you want to read a gospel in a Proverbs, right? Or a gospel uh, in some history. Then flip it. A letter and poetry. Mix up the genres. Remember, the genre is nothing more than a literary form, and a literary form is nothing more than a bucket that carries the water of the word. But the bucket carries the water of the word a certain way to you. They're not all the same buckets. They're all different buckets. And sometimes you need story to reach you. Sometimes you need, like, Paul's absolute, precise arguments, right? Sometimes you need vivid images of poetry, the Psalms. Now, you need to know about the image of the great chaotic deep 
you need to know about the Leviathan and the dark things that live in the waters because that's what your life feels like. And you need words to describe. That's why when people are going through overwhelming things in their life, the Bible in the Psalter has the whole spectrum of human emotion there for you in images and in clear, sticky reality statements so that you can go, that's me, that's my voice, that's God knows and hears me. So you can talk about darkness being your only friend, those of you that have lived in darkness and know that to be true. You can talk about quicksand sucking you down. You, can, you know what it's like to get sucked down into yourself. You know what it's like to get sucked down into a sin that's debilitating. You know what it's like to watch a child get sucked down. Whatever, right? This is what the Bible does for us. It speaks, it gives you your voice. You don't know. I was telling, who was I talking to? I think I was talking to my daughter about, yeah, one of the things that, that when you don't know what's going on in your life, um, and this is where one tradition can go a little crazy with it, the whole name it, claim it stuff, there's some truth to that. Because when you don't know what's going on with you, one of the things God wants to do is actually show you what's going on with you, right? So he's going to give you images, and he's going to give you clarity. So like, let's say you're struggling with anxiety, and you don't know why you're, you don't know why, but all of a sudden, you start realizing the whys of your anxiety, right? And what does that do? Well, before you didn't know the whys of your anxiety, you were becoming even anxious about your anxiety, right? And it's just this incredible, horrible feeling. But all of a sudden, you start realizing, oh, man, a lot of my anxiety is like I just, I need acceptance and approval, and I'm not having it, or I don't feel, I feel like a fail. Well, you, right? Now, all of a sudden, God is helping you name it. Name it, claim it, right? That's where that comes from. It's a little overdone, but that's the gist. When God wanted to um, share, God's in control, right? And he wants to share his control with you. He wants you to experience his control. So what does he do? He helps you understand why you do what you do because now he's passing on his control to you. Remember Adam and Eve? The animals were marched before him and God said, okay, I'm king, but you're also a king and queen now. You're going to participate in my reign, my control. Name them. You name them. Right? That was a, that was in the naming, Adam and Eve were experiencing the control of God. Not their control, God's control. And what the Bible does for us is when he names it in the scriptures, gives you a voice, he's actually letting you participate in his control. And you now can be in control when you're out of control because you never were in control in the first place. The only control you actually have is when you start realizing he's in control, then all of a sudden you start getting self-control. See how this works? It's incredibly important. Okay, so prayer is a way that that happens. It's a way that you begin to experience by faith the realities of what he's teaching you. Okay, let's do this. I wanted to do this before we go into the mystery of prayer and then the practice of prayer. Luther actually gave the best practice, and, and I would say it's the best. I, I, I think it's the best. It's the only one that's worked for me. Um, what's the difference? What would it look like if you treat prayer as primary speech versus treating prayer as secondary speech? Let's say you treat prayer as a primary speech, not as answering speech. Let's just talk about what prayer looks like under those two different ways. Just to help us see, oh my word. All right, if prayer is primary speech, what happens? What's that? Yes. It's about your agenda. It, you, and, and even if you don't want it to be about your agenda, right? You can't help yourself. It's going to be about your agenda. Yes. 
becomes a law. Isn't that interesting? And why is that going to happen? Yes. Yeah. 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 So if by if if you're if Luther's right, if Paul is right, if Jesus is right, the default mode of your heart, the default mode of your Adamic nature, is living under the law and being enslaved to the law and living in a mental universe of law, a feelings of law, experiences of law. So what are you going to do with prayer? Turn it into a law. What are you going to do with how to read the scripture? Turn it into a law. I mean, it's just naturally what we're going to do. And if we know that that's what we're going to do, that's the default mode. But then you learn, well, prayer is really answering speech. So now it becomes more, it, it's now in a, in a different universe called grace. That's a different way to start learning to pray. So that's why I'm never, I'm never a fan of, I mean, certainly I'm a fan of, you know, here's some, Helpful ways to pray, fantastic. Um, but I don't. I, I honestly, I don't read that stuff anymore. I used to read that stuff all the time. I used to read about so and so's devotional life, prayer life. Uh, every missionary that did something I thought was halfway decent or worthwhile in God's mission, I'd try to figure out what was the it about them. Um, oh, maybe it was that. And so then I'd start trying to put that into practice. Right? Told you I was hardcore, very hardcore. Okay, so what else? Answering speech, primary speech. What would be some things, Ben? Excellent. That's part two. Oh. That's exactly where we're going, dude. Ben, that's perfect. That is the mystery of prayer. We're going to do that. Uh, excellent, dude. You served that up perfectly. Before we get there, is there any final thing? So that is a, that's, so the Holy Spirit, right? Where's the Holy Spirit in all this? That's a really, really, that's what we're going to tackle next. And I think that this is going to be very encouraging as well when we see. All right, any final thoughts on primary speech? You know, it just comes to mind that you're like, okay, yeah. Or even you think about your own life, you're like, yeah. This is where I, this is how I treat it as primary speech, or this is what I've realized about secondary speech. Heather, I think just really just my natural life, like in primary speech, is like coming to prayer, kind of like alone, like talking, and it's like the Lord shows up. Yes. And then it's, it's what you're saying is like the response is like that conversation that's already begun with the yes. Spirit that's spoken to you. Yes. 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 Andy, can you see how if if the Psalms is right? Right and says, and Romans is right, that there's speech coming from creation. That's why people feel in touch with the force and feel in touch with whatever. Or you feel in touch with God when you're in the mountains because they're speaking to you. They're declaring. They're speaking to you. That's why you will pray. You see how it's, you can't escape the word of God. It spoke this world into existence. It upholds right now the very sustaining existence of you and everything that's been made. And then he speaks his son. His son is the word of God. Then it gets all inscripturated in a word of God. You see, everything holds together by God's word. It's that third substance that scientists can't figure out that holds everything together. Yeah. 
right, 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 right. Well, first, first what we do is we look at the whole of Scripture, correct? But even when he's instructing on prayer, notice that the question came up from who? Disciples are like, how do you pray? Why would they be asking that? Because this is the result of the Sermon on the Mount. God is speaking to them. The whole topic of prayer came up in the context of a sermon. Yeah. They're all of a sudden, they're going, hey, can you teach us? Maybe, maybe there's a couple of things. Maybe, like, being a human being is that you were made to be dependent and respond to God. So, innately, prayer is an, is an answer in all of us. It's waiting we're waiting to be spoken to. We're waiting to be recognized. We're waiting to be affirmed. We're waiting for it. So innately, you were made to pray, right? Innately. So that's there, right? It's an instinct, some might say. Um, but when you do look at the scriptures, you'll see very fascinatingly how when wherever prayer is talked about, it's always, always in the context of a response to what who Jesus is, what he's done. Um, it's always placed after, like, if even if you're looking at strategically at Paul when he talks about prayer, like we're going to look at right now. In Romans, he just gives you the richest theological exposition of the power of the gospel, and then prayer comes into the practical part. Ephesians, same thing. Prayer comes after, or in the middle of it. Like, oh man, I pray that God would strengthen you with power in your innermost being so that you believe this stuff, right? So that's where you kind of, you can kind of see that. And I think it, with the classic though with Jesus is, he, here he is preaching, God himself speaking. And now a natural way. And then he gives this whole thing about, you know, don't pray like this. Basically he's saying, don't see prayer as a primary speech, some, some way that you kind of affirm yourself before God kind of claw your way into my presence. First thing he says is, Father, right? That's a whole different way of relating. And then remember, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you are the needy one, right? Coming at night in complete desperation. So again, all those things kind of teach us, put them all together in a theology of prayer. Okay, so let's do that. We got 15 minutes, we do want to hit it. Let's hit the mystery of prayer. Turn to Romans 8. <clears throat> Um, I feel like we need to read, we need to start at 18 and go to 25 and then actually get into the section on the Holy Spirit. What is the mystery of prayer? Um, you got verse 8, 18, see that? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us, right? Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So this is the consummation, this is glorification. Everything's waiting all of creation's waiting to go home. Everything's waiting to go home, all right? Uh, waiting for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, right? For the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, for creation was subjected to futility. When? Genesis 3. Remember? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. You remember our covenant theology class? Remember how we said that uh, what should have happened when Adam and Eve sinned was what? Final condemnation. But instead, it went to corruption. This is Paul's exposition of that passage. It should have gone to final condemnation, the ultimate death. The day you eat of it, you die. Over. Adam and Eve and all of us. Because we were, he was representing all of us. All of us. Should have gone there, right? Shing. But instead, it went sideways to corruption. So by going to corruption, it's a backhanded grace. Do you see this? We think, this world, how? Well, the only reason this world, how, is still here is because of God's grace. But it sucks. Yeah. Yes. It's better than that. Now watch Paul tell us about that. Look at what he says. For creation was subjected to futility, to nothingness, to meaninglessness. 
the upside down, corruption, right? Uh, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we too, the who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. Again, this is the redemption of our bodies. This is the final homecoming. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is not, now hope that is seen is not hope, right? Who hopes for what he sees, right? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with, the better word is endurance. Anytime you see patience in the Bible, I can't stand that word, sorry. Endurance is a better word. It's endurance. It's embrace the suck. You, it's enduring something. Patience sounds like, you know, I need to work on my patience because I was in the line for 15 minutes. And doesn't it? It sounds like a pittance. Endurance speaks to something like difficult. Yeah, grit, gutsy grace, right? The seal's called embrace the suck. I love that. Embrace it. All right, likewise, now, now, here, likewise, the Spirit helps us. Whoa, that was a... What a shift, right? He's going this way, and then, boop, he goes in this direction. We're all looking, yeah, home, glory. And then he goes, and likewise, likewise what, right? Likewise, the Spirit helps us. What does that mean? The Spirit comes to your aid. The Spirit comes to your aid. Okay. In our weakness. What's our weakness? Well, what we just read. All 18 through 25, and really the whole book of Romans. Do you know what that word groan means? It's, it's the military word for a soldier groaning on the battlefield while he looks at his blood running out of him and he's going to die. That's how, that's how powerful that word is. You've just received a mortal wound, and you can't hold your stuff in anymore. Your lifeblood is bleeding out on the battlefield, and you are groaning the pain of death. You are groaning because your life is over. That's what this groaning is. So this is not like, you know, clouds and lambs. This is in the midst of, like, war. He says, uh, in our weakness, for we do not know, likewise, the Spirit helps us, comes to our aid in our weakness, all of 18 through 25, for we do not know what we ought to pray. You know what that means? We do not know what we ought to pray. You know what that means? We do not know what we ought to pray. So if your primary speech, you do not know what you ought to pray. And what that means is, for all of us right now, every one of our prayers have stupidity in them because we do not know what we ought to pray. So there's going to be two materials, raw materials in your prayer. One of them is going to be stupidity, and the other is going to be something solid, a solid core. Well, what is that? And all prayer, your prayers right now, the best spirit-inspired prayers you have will have part stupidity, Heart solid, something good. Isn't that great, though? So if that's the way it is, you might as well just get after it. Why try to perfect it? Why try to control it? Just pray. Learn to pray. Do it, right? Because it's going to be stupid, and there's going to be a solid core. Well, let's figure out where it comes from. For we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes. You know what that word means, intercedes? It means he stands in for you. He stands in for you. The Spirit stands in for you in prayer. That's pretty doggone powerful. Does it say that the Spirit stands in for you when you know it? Does the Spirit stand in for you when you like are self-consciously believing it? Does the Spirit stand in for you when you're doing really, really well? Does the Spirit stand in for you when you feel glorious in God's love? Does the Spirit stand in for you only when you're avoiding sin? The, no, the, the Spirit 
stands in for you, period. This is where your solid core comes into your prayer. So prayer consists of two things, stupidity and a solidness. And the spirit brings the solidness, not you. That's incredibly freeing. All right, so he stands in for us with groanings. Whoa. Okay, now what's happening? Right? Um, this is where uh, the translations are like, this is, this is not like, it's sort of like the groanings up above. But then they say things like sighs. Uh, this is my favorite. An involuntary expression of great concern or stress for you. In other words, the spirit is actually stressed out about you. That's unbelievable, right? The spirit right now stresses over your stresses, involuntary. You're, you're sad, you're sighing, you're bleeding out, you're groaning, and he is too for you. The deepest impulse, heart of God, is involuntary compassion and mercy and love for you. It's phenomenal. Do you see God seeing you that way? Right? If we did, we'd pray. Right? Okay, so the Spirit stresses over you. And notice it's too deep for words. Oh, now it gets really mysterious. What are we talking about? So this is beyond words. Evidently, there's a form of communication that even goes beyond words. I, I don't know what that means, honestly. But there's words, and then there are beyond words. It doesn't mean they're not words. It just means it's supra words. It's a supra communication. Doesn't mean it's not communication. Do you see that? It's like when you tell folks, Christianity is not irrational. It's not rational. It's not rationalism, only rational. And it's not irrational. It's supra rational. It's intelligent and more, right? It's reason and revelation. Yeah. Yes. I think so. I mean, again, I think it's probably in that ballpark. It's in that, you know, when, when you don't know what's going on, right, and you're looking and you're reading the Psalms and you're like, oh, that's getting at it, right? But it's that dynamic, and then it's, it's when you don't know. You don't know what's going on with you but the Holy Spirit does, right? And then I just think there's this other, because it's God's Spirit, which is ultimate reality, communicating with God, head, ultimate reality, that there's something just, it's communication, but I don't know what it is, right? And then he says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes, stands in for the saints according to the will of God. So the mystery of prayer is the Holy Spirit. That's the mystery. And so the Holy Spirit authors the Scripture and scripturates the Scripture is the, the voice that breathes the Scripture. Then the Holy Spirit, and remember, that's why in our tradition it's so important to keep the word, the, we keep the word and the spirit together. We don't separate the spirit and, and from the word and put it in a church tradition, Catholicism, right? We don't separate the spirit and put it on an anointed, special anointed individualism, which is more of an Anabaptist, charismatic Pentecostal tradition. We don't take the Holy Spirit and separate from the word and put it on biblical principles, and how-tos, spiritual techniques, which is evangelicalism, right? We don't take the spirit and separate it from the word and put it immediately in your heart, which is anabaptism, right? We take the word and the spirit together. 
and Mary. There's no separation. So wherever the word goes, the spirit goes. And in other words, the gospel is the power of God, right? That's the two that are together. So the mystery of, the, of prayer is the Holy Spirit. So we read the scriptures. God the Spirit speaks to us, gives us Jesus, points to Jesus. Because remember John, what Jesus says in John is, listen, the Holy Spirit's mission is to point to me, reveal me to you. Um, so if, if there's a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is not seen in its primary mission, which is to reveal Jesus and his salvation, then you got to question that movement of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time from Mike Horton. Some of us talk about the Holy Spirit like Jesus started the church, the Holy Spirit began a movement, and the two have been in competition ever since. It's one of the best quotes ever. The Holy Spirit is with the Word, pointing to Jesus with the church. Okay, so here's the deal. So relax. Here's my uh, application here. Relax. Your prayers are always going to consist of two raw materials, stupidity and a solid core. So relax. Uh, Also, the Holy Spirit not only prays for you, right? Solid prayers for you, that solid part of your prayers, but also feels deeply for you. That the Holy Spirit actually knows what's going on inside of you when you don't and feels incredible empathy. You ever wondered why, you know, that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept? Why would Jesus weep when he knows he's going to raise a Lazarus from the dead? Right? But he's, he still wept. Because he loves us deeply. And the sisters are weeping. Right? He involuntarily is stressed out for them. Right? I mean, it's a compassion and it's a level of emotional intensity that we don't allow ourselves to go to and believe is true. We, we, no, 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 can't be that good. No, nope, he's, he's, he's more clinical. You know, he goes, Jesus is the great physician in the clean hospital. The white glove, right? Um, this, I mean, anyhow, so that's the deal, all right? So, what do you do? Here's what Luther does. Luther says, well, Jesus gave you a practical guide. You want a practical guide of prayer? Use the Lord's Prayer. Read it. <laughs> so what Luther would do is he would read the scriptures. He'd shut up and listen. He'd have something to say. And then when he wanted some intentional, like he's had that reading, being spoken back to life again, listening, answering back with what's immediately needs to be communicated to Jesus like it's a real relationship and then he would he would like if he was walking to the next town to preach and teach he would start with the Lord's Prayer and he would he would maybe only get to our father and that's all he did and then maybe sometimes he would jump down to lead me not into temptation and that's all he did and then he would you see how he would use the Lord's Prayer and he'd say forgive us our debts and he would confess he would say um, our father who art in heaven he'd do the who art in heaven part the who art in heaven is king control so when he's feeling out of control our father he'd say our father who art in heaven and he would start you're in control not the popes that are coming after me. Not the assassins that they're sending after me. Right? I mean, this is what you do. Who art in heaven? Holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. Glorify your name. Well, what does that mean? That means like what we looked at this past Sunday. That means who God is and what he's done becoming famous, becoming clear to the mind and real to the heart for as many people as possible. So it's a mission type thing. It's, it's the same thing as almost it's going 
from that direction, holy be your name in my life, maybe in my kids, in my wife, uh, thy kingdom come. You know, that is the gospel bringing in the kingdom in experiential reality on this earth. So that's, that man, that incorporates a lot of prayer right there, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, the power, the control. Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? Many are wondering what the deliver us from evil was, and it, it's everything that's evil. Uh, the reformers used to personalize it and say, deliver us from the evil one. And that means, I think it's that, and it's all the dark powers. What are all the dark powers? Sin, death, death in all of its multiforms. Certainly the ultimate death, which is the final death, and certainly the physical death at the end of our life, and also the many, many little deaths of life, like the death of loneliness and the death of uh, the loss of a spouse. The de- you know, I mean, there's the death of your reputation. There's the death of your old self. I mean, there's all kinds of deaths that we experience in this life, right? Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the dark powers. Um, for thine is the, oh, and give us this day our daily bread. Again, that's just, what are some petitions? Daily bread. Um, it could be just food. I don't know. I'm still wondering about that. Most stretch it to go beyond the, the wooden literal, just food. Some say just food, that's a big deal. So, okay, if that's you, great. Or it could be more like your, your daily needs the daily things that are stressing you out. Um, so you see, you just do, you can do that. And that's a lot to, that's a pretty good thing, way to start. He never went on from that. He just went into it ever more deeper and more fully and in a more mature way. That's all he did. It's called, he has a little book. It's a Luther prayer book. It's on the Lord's prayer. It's a good little deal. Calvin did the same thing. I think he got it from Luther, though. <laughs> okay, y'all. Uh, that's it. Next week, I don't know what we're going to do next week. Our last one, if you have questions, that would be a good time. Um, I think, is there anything that you're like, can you talk about this? Uh, I, I will seriously do that if you have something that's... Uh, Pressing on spiritual disciplines. So we've done scripture, we've done prayer, we could do sacraments. I mean, we could do a lot of things. Uh, I mean, I think it's great for people that aren't like me. <laughs> I know it's a broad, crazy answer. Uh, no, I think I think right now I could probably enter into scripture memory again. I think I could do it. Um, I think it'd be great, right? But I like I'm I'm in this 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 very fruitful phase that I've been in now for 20 years. Of uh, I remember more of scripture because I'm not trying to master it anymore. Like right now, it's just absolutely crazy. I could read our text that we have. I could read the text that we're going to do on Sunday. I'll read it on on, uh, Tuesday morning to be put back together again, right? So I read the text on Tuesday morning, and I'll start doing the initial work in it. And it will be with me the rest of the week, the whole text. I don't memorize it. I can see it. I can see it on my screen. I can see... Uh, the underlines, I can see the things I thought about, I can see, and then for the rest of the week, I'm just sitting in it, and I don't even know it, but I'm sitting in it. So I, I, I that's more helpful to me than getting my cards out and memorizing it that way. But for some of us, that might be a really helpful thing. That's why I don't want to, the, the practices that help you listen, the scripture, you know, the, that's a practice for the power of scripture, right? If that is beneficial to you, by all means. Like some people uh, journal because it it's helpful, right? It, it's a listening, answering, it's a listening, answering experiential thing for you. Do that. 
I think what's important is spiritual practices are formed attached to fixed means of grace. So a form is flexible. Don't make it fixed. The moment you make it fixed, it becomes wrong. What do you mean, Jeff? I'm going way, way over. If y'all need to go, go. I know we got kids. Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affection. And he was trying to document the Spirit's work in the second uh, awakening. And he was saying, how can you have all these extraordinary signs of the Spirit and then such crap going with it? And his conclusion was, how do you know what a true work of the Spirit is? His conclusion was the gospel becoming clear to the mind and real to the heart. That was his final conclusion. So here's what he said about the visible signs. They're not a certain sign of anything. But the moment you make them a certain sign, you've now destroyed it. So if you say falling down and barking like a dog is a sign of the Holy Spirit, you just made it absolutely invalid. It's not a certain sign of anything. It's not a certain sign that it is a work of God's grace, and it's not a certain sign that it's not a work of God's grace. But the moment you say it's a certain sign, you just invalidated it. Do you see how that works? I think it's the same thing with, with discipline, forms. We stick to the means of grace, but the moment you over, you, you make the flexible method a fixed means of grace, I think you end up messing it up. So if journaling works for you, so be it. Scripture memory works for you, so be it. doesn't work for me. But if it works for you, I want you to do it. Amen, gold piece.